Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's exactly 9 o'clock, so we're going to start. And you have a real treat in store, uh, Professor Rob McDonald, who's Professor of History at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, he's a serious scholar. I think most of you have had a chance to look at his bio, and the work that he's done is important at uh, understanding the American founding, putting it in its context. And he's going to share that with you today. Should also make an advertisement. He wrote a fabulous essay in this wonderful book coming out September 1st and available in bookstores everywhere uh, called Peace, Love, and Liberty on the contribution of the American Enlightenment to peace and looking at people such as George Washington and others and their fear of war and their uh, measures to make it difficult to commit the nation to war and very importantly for the first time in history subjecting the military systematically to civilian control which was a great accomplishment of the American founding. So I hope you will order that book and we can get a free copy uh, to you if you just request one and you'll get a chance to read one of Rob's uh, latest contributions. And with that, Rob McDonald. Thanks, Tom. Well, thanks everybody, it's great to be here. And uh, gosh, the Rancho Bernardo, it's sort of perfect. Uh, this is, you know, the happiest Tuesday of the year. Doesn't even feel like Tuesday. Feels more like Saturday. Um, and, and, and I hope that, that you'll enjoy uh, the series of, of talks that Tom has asked me to give on American history. And uh, I single out American history in part because that's what I know. That's what I study. Um, I don't think that uh, American history is uh, necessarily more important than the histories of, of other nations. But I do think that it offers us some really interesting, really compelling, really important case studies about the history of liberty. And that we can learn something from the past as we look toward the future. And when we look way to the past, when we look at the origins of America as a nation, we see a land where uh, people were frankly quite happy to be British. Um, America, during the colonial period, was a place that enjoyed certain specific advantages. One of those was that we were part of the British Empire. And Great Britain, at the time, was not only the most powerful, not only the most prosperous, but probably not coincidentally, the most free nation on the planet. And our founding fathers very much appreciated this fact. When you look at uh, some of the things that they had to say, um, they were oftentimes marveling at, at, at the blessings that they enjoyed as, as British subjects. Uh, John Adams is, is one example. Um, he described the British Constitution as the most perfect combination of human powers and society which finite wisdom has yet contrived and reduced to practice for the preservation of liberty and the production of happiness. Anywhere else around the world that you might look, you would see emperors and pashas and absolute monarchs. And yet Britain had this constitutional monarchy, this, this government that accepted limits, that had divided powers, that had a balanced constitution. You had parliament and you had the king. You had uh, limits imposed upon government as a result of the glorious revolution of 1688. And uh, the glorious revolution, of course, is in many respects uh, a very important um, forebearer of the American Revolution. 
uh, the story is, is, I suppose, simple enough or can be simplified enough. Um, you start off with, with James II, um, a king who many people in Britain suspect of being uh, uh, an absolutist, somebody who doesn't want to share power with parliament, somebody who doesn't want to accept limits um, upon his authority. And there is this relatively bloodless, uh, glorious revolution. And uh, as a result, William and Mary are installed um, as the new monarchs. And they accept the Bill of Rights. They accept that there are certain things they cannot do. And, and, and so this, this idea of a government with limited powers is really, really important. And, and yet, of course, you know, we know certain things about the, uh, the British. I hate to generalize. It's probably never a, a good thing to generalize about people. But my British friend, I love the British. My British friends are, are, are fantastic. But I, you, I don't know that they're the most revolutionary people around. You know, they, they tend to be very polite, uh, very orderly. Uh, when I, I, I lived in Britain for a year, and uh, it took me a while to figure this out, but not only do Americans drive on the right side of the road, but we uh, walk on the right side of the sidewalk. And in Britain, it's the opposite. You know, you're supposed to walk on the left side of the sidewalk. But I, it took me forever to figure that out, and I kept almost bumping into people. And uh, it was entirely my fault. And yet, what did these nice British pedestrians say to me every time? Sorry, right? Sorry, yes, they would apologize. And, uh, you know, one of the best things I suppose that, that uh, Britain does, well, they do so many things well, but I mean, one of the things that I noticed that really stood out in America, when we go to the store or whatever, a lot of times, you know, we're kind of this unruly frontier people. Um, we're not very good at, at, at accepting directions or standing and waiting in line. The British are excellent at it. You know, they call it queuing, and they're very good at queuing. Uh, in America, it's chaos. It's pandemonium. I remember as a kid going to the supermarket with my mother, and uh, she would get in one line at the grocery store, and then she would have me stand in another line. And if my line was moving faster, she would move the shopping cart over and have me, and, and she would join me. And if her line was, was going faster, she, you know, she would call me over and I would join her. In Britain, they don't do that. They have these wonderful compound cues, kind of like they, they do at Barnes and Noble. So everybody stands in the same line and then the next available cashier will help you. They're very good at that, very good at that. Not natural revolutionaries. You know, not people you would take for bomb throwers. Not people you would expect would just overthrow their government without a second thought. And, and, and so the job of explaining what justified the glorious revolution, what made it legitimate, fell to a man who I think is probably certainly in the top 10 um, of the most important people to live in the past 1,000 years, maybe even number one. And that person is John Locke. Um, John Locke is famous for a number of different things. Uh, he's famous, of course, for writing in the aftermath of the glorious revolution, his two treatises on government. Um, he has his uh, uh, thoughts on education, his essay on human understanding. He contributed to the fundamental orders of South Carolina. Um, he's famous also uh, for being a dead ringer um, to the actress Jessica Tandy. Mm -hmm. It's really undeniable. And uh, John Locke is uh, the person who justified the Glorious Revolution, and he did so by explaining to us 
what the purpose of government was in the first place. His argument was that James II and his regime failed to meet the purpose of government. And uh, he, he explained the origins of government by looking back in time all the way back to the, the beginnings of time, the beginnings of human history. Um, he took us all the way back to the state of nature. I need a volunteer. Anyone feel kind of brave, courageous? Yeah, your hand up. Yeah, what's your name? Ellie? Kelly. Kelly. Kelly, would you come forward? Do you mind? All right, so Kelly is a cave woman. And uh, come on up. She stands before us in the state of nature, right? Uh, There she is. She's in the jungle. Now, the state of nature, Kelly, uh, in in some ways, it's a a pretty cool place. Uh, I don't know if anyone's been to Outback Steakhouse. Their their motto is uh, new rules, uh, just just rights, right? I think they say new rules, just right. But we'll add the S. New rules, just rights. So Kelly has rights in the state of nature. um, And there are no rules that are imposed upon her. So... um, you tell us. I mean, who decides when you get up in the morning? Me. She does. Who decides when you go to bed at night? Me. Who decides what you do during the day? Me. So Kelly is, is, you know, her own sovereign, her own ruler. And uh, what do you do during the day? What would you expect you would do during the state, in the state of nature? Um, survive. And, and it, very important, what are some of the things that are necessary for survival? Um, Yeah, good. That's that's a good call. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, we'll start off with food. I mean, what do you, what do you eat in the state of nature? How do you get food for yourself? Um, well, I'm a hunter and gatherer. Okay. Because I don't know how to make a weapon. <laughs> so she's she's nomadic and she likes to wander through the forest looking for uh, roots and berries and 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 and, and other such things. Um, but I think you sell yourself short. I mean, I think that you would figure it out. In the state of nature, you would get pretty, uh, oh, there we go. We have lots of modern technology in the state of nature. Um, in, the, <laughs> in the state of nature, I bet you'd be pretty industrious. And I bet you would figure it out. I bet you would uh, figure out you know, how to make a basket, um, maybe out of vines, or uh, you would whittle you know, pieces of wood off of a stick. Or speaking of whittling sticks, you, maybe you can make a spear to get fish. Um, and you'd have like this big basket of fish, I bet. I bet you would be, you know, really well, well provisioned. Okay, I'll concede. Yeah. I'm well provisioned. You're good at camping, right? Sure. Yeah, so, <laughs> so Kelly, I mean, it would be wonderful in the state of nature for Kelly because she would be able to, uh, you know, establish her right to property in certain things. Locke said, you know, Kelly, uh, you know, despite all of her awesome powers, she can't just like wave her arms and, and proclaim, you know, the entirety of, of creation hers. You know, she can't just claim it. Um, But if she um, finds things in the state of nature, um, if she clears a field, if she makes a bow and arrow, if she makes a spear, if she mixes her labor with something that she finds in the state of nature, then it becomes her property. So Locke would say that she has a right to that property. He would say that uh, she has property in, in other such things, including her very self, right? She owns herself. And she has the right to think for herself. You know, one of the things about Kelly's anatomy that, that we all share, um, Kelly has a brain, right? And she doesn't share her brain with anyone. She is designed to think for herself. And uh, she has uh, legs, so she is designed to be able to move about freely. 
Um, she has her hands, so she can mix her labor and establish property and things. So all of these things, um, Locke would say, are her rights. She has a right to these things. Um, no rules, just rights. It's, it's, and you're eating fish and nuts and berries. and It's wonderful. It's perfect, almost, in the state of nature. Isn't it, isn't it great? It's fabulous. It's almost, it's almost, I mean, the only thing better would be the Rancho Bernardo Inn. You know? It's Fantastic. True. So uh, it's, it's, it's a glorious, glorious uh, place uh, where, where Kelly gets to live, except for one thing. Except for one thing. And now I need another volunteer. Yeah, what's your name? Jack. Jack, come on forward. So Jack, <clears throat> I haven't yet met Jack. I, I'm sure Jack is a wonderful guy, perfectly nice. Uh, but for our purposes this morning, he is a barbarian, all right? <laughs> Jack is a terrible barbarian. And uh, you'll, you'll notice Alex just provided Jack with this really big club. And... Uh, you see, Kelly has this wonderful basket of fish. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like those fish? Sure say so. So what might you do? Club. Boom, right? So, so uh, Jack the Barbarian might, you know, club Kelly over the head and take her basket of fish. Awful, awful. So in the state of nature, you might have liberty, you might have rights, but you don't really have security in them. And I don't mean to get all Oprah on you all, but uh, Kelly, how does that make you feel? <laughs> upset. So she's very upset. And I think, you know, channeling Oprah, I think what we need to do is we need to figure out how can we empower you? Yes. Empower so me, please. What, what are some things that we could do to empower you? Um, I mean, he took your basket of fish. Well, I need a protective association. Ooh. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm in the market for a protective association. No, I, I swear to you, Kelly's not a plant. You know, she, 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 she instantly got it. Um, some people say I need, they should devise a club that's even bigger than, than Jack the Barbarians. Um, or, you know, that's, that's a possibility. Carrying a big stick. Carrying a big stick. But, you know, one thing certainly that you could do is try to find um, an alliance. Try to find other people who will come together with you, um, and you will mutually protect each other's rights. And, and we'll know, you know, Jack, for all of his, uh, you know, uh, uncouth barbarity, right? Jack, it could have been worse. He, he just clubbed her and took her stuff. He could have enslaved her. He could have killed her. You know, there are other rights that he could have violated. The state of nature is a wonderful place because it's free, but in some ways it's kind of a scary place. So if only you had a posse. If only you had um, people who could come to your, your aid. May I have two more volunteers? <laughs> yeah, you? What's your name? What's it? Andra? Yeah, come on forward. And one, one other person, please. Yeah. And what's your name? Okay. So, uh, welcome to the state of nature. But it, but it won't remain the state of nature very long because you are, are going to help. Kelly, to get back her basket of fish. Right. So why don't you, you wander on over. Now, Jack, uh, I, the tables are turned, I'm, I'm afraid. You are now, you may have a big club, but you are outnumbered pretty, pretty significantly. So why don't you go and get Kelly's uh, fish back? You, you go too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well done, well done. Well, anyway, uh, Jack, bad news, you are banished. Return to your seat. Thank you very much for your, uh, your assistance. Applause for Jack.
Now, you guys, I mean, you know, that was pretty courageous. You kind of put yourselves out there uh, to help Kelly. Um, what would you expect from her in return? Well, some fish. Some fish, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what else? I mean, if, if, if Jack or some, someone of his ilk were to uh, try to steal from you or kidnap you or kill you, yeah, what would you expect? some health also. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this, this notion of reciprocity. Um, and according to John Locke, you know, this is how we, we, we get government. People in the state of nature will come together and they will uh, join together for the purpose of protecting each other's individual rights. The right to life, the right to liberty, the right to their basket of fish, um, the right to their, their, their estates, their property, the things that they, they create in, uh, in nature, the things that they pass along to their children. And, and this is a government at its best. You know, a government that uh, adheres to these basic tenets. And yet, and yet, imagine, right, a couple generations from now. What if uh, Andrea III should, should uh, proclaim himself the emperor, you know, of this civilization and, and start uh, taking away the rights of their descendants? What if he should start to abuse people's uh, property um, and confiscate it arbitrarily? What if he should start constraining people's liberty? What if he should even start to threaten or end people's lives? I mean, according to John Locke, this fine Englishman, what would the people of this society have the right to do? Oh, remember, he's English. Very cautious, prudent, responsible. Protest or petition, John Locke said. They have the right to petition, right? So they would... You know, please, Andrea III, please stop, uh, you know, imposing upon our rights, they might say. And what if, you know, despite their protests, Andrea continued to violate their rights? What then? What then do they have the right to do? Yeah. <laughs> Ask one more time. And say please. But if still, if still, the, uh, the monarch, the emperor continued to violate their rights, they would then have the right um, to have a revolution and, and overthrow that, that government. Um, and you could see you know, how the glorious revolution of 1688 is very much on the mind of the American revolutionaries um, 100 years later. Well, anyway, thank you all very much. Well done. Good job. So this, this notion you know, of the purpose of government, the purpose of government is to protect our rights. Is, is, is really key to understanding what the American colonists considered to be their birthright. And it's very important to understand that, that they viewed this not so much as a challenge to British legitimacy, but the thing that made their great, powerful, prosperous, and free nation legitimate in the first place. I mean, the Glorious Revolution, this is, uh, this is what establishes the rightness and the correctness of their government. And of course, um, Great Britain uh, is, is, is free for a number of different reasons. It's not just uh, Locke's theory about liberty and the origins of government. Um, Britain has uh, always kind of a, a recognized that there are certain lines that should not be crossed. Um, when you uh, think about basic premises of freedom, one of the, the, the things that, that maybe comes to mind is a saying that is kind of old-fashioned, 
um, but I think really uh, important. And uh, here it's expressed by James Otis in 1761, you know, one of the original uh, Sons of Liberty um, in Boston, one of the original members of the, uh, the movement to resist uh, British authority after the French and Indian War. Um, but this, this sentiment is, is one that is age old and time worn and uh, really, really important. One of the most essential branches of English liberty is the freedom of one's house. A man's house is his castle. So your house is your castle. You are the queen. You are the king in your house. And what does that mean? I mean, that means that if you are the queen in your house, guess who is not the queen or the king in your house? The queen or the king, right? I mean, the, the king or the queen of Britain may be the monarch out in the public road or in the public square. But in your house, on your property, you are the boss. You get to decide. If you want to paint your living room purple, go for it. You know? I mean, that is your decision. Tom mentioned yesterday uh, his homeowners association. If you want to join together with others and, 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 and make rules and, and voluntarily enter into them, that's fine too. But it's up to you. You are the king. You are the queen. And the government is not in charge on your property. And when you think about that, and when you think about the degree to which people come to, to treasure that, it really brings in a great deal of toleration. You know? Kelly wants a purple living room. I mean, that's not what I would choose. But, you know... I want my living room to be orange. And if my right to have an orange living room is going to be protected, then, then I'm going to stand up for her right to have a purple living room. This, this toleration, this notion that people can be in charge of themselves, that we should respect people's rights to control and enjoy their property as they choose, is one that brings about a, a great deal of, of respect and toleration and understanding and I think it's one of the reasons why Britain you know, is, is such a peaceful and, and, and fairly moderate rules-abiding place. Right? It's because of this culture. Um, the state of nature, as we've seen, that's a, a brutal, awful place. You know, at any moment, some, some barbarian can, can come and club you over the head or take your stuff or, or try to boss you around and establish, through force, control over you and your life. But when you respect that people have property, when you respect that they are um, in charge of it, when you respect that they are in charge of themselves, this really makes freedom um, an actuality. And, and, and so this, too, is one of the important, I think, premises of uh, Anglo-American society. And, and there's something more. I mean, we, we spoke about toleration. In, in Great Britain and in what would become the United States during the colonial period, of course, um, there, there are, in each, in each colony, there is an established church. You know, it might be the Congregationalists, the Puritans in New England. It might be the Church of England in the Middle Colonies or the South. But, but each colony has an established church. And uh, I think that's probably a real disadvantage. It's, it's a real disadvantage um, 
especially if you care about religion. Because the, uh, the first generations in some parts of colonial North America, they, they may have been extraordinarily faithful. Uh, I'll talk later this morning about the uh, pilgrims. I mean, they could not have been more religious. And yet, generations passed. Massachusetts became more secular. Even though they had this official government-sanctioned, government-supported church, it just wasn't doing it for people. And, and by the, the, the first third of the 1700s, America seemed to be slumbering in, in terms of its faith. They would perhaps, because of the law, go to church. The clergyman would drone on. just wasn't really doing it for anyone until, until 1739. And the arrival in America of George Whitfield. George Whitfield is this uh, English preacher. I mean, he's interesting from a, a theological standpoint. But, but really, for our purposes, what's interesting about him is that he was different. And, and he offered competition to the established churches. And he was dynamic. He was energetic. He delivered his, his sermons in ways um, that related to people. Um, he fired people up. He was like a rock star. He went to uh, Boston, Massachusetts, at the time, a town of about 15,000 people. He preached on Boston Common. 30,000 people showed up. He gave a sermon in the Old uh, South uh, Meeting House. And it was so packed with people, so crowded with, with, with people who were eager to hear him preach, that when finally he was done, when finally the crowd began to recede, Three bodies fell from the walls against which they had been pressed to death. I mean, this is a phenomenon. People literally would, would, would you know, grab his, his, his vestments and, and, and rip off pieces of the fabric. He was a rock star. This was like Godstock or Godapalooza or Godaroo. You know, I mean, his voice, his, his ability to command their attention, his crossed eyes were like tractor beams that drew people in. And of course, you can imagine being, uh, being one of the clergymen in one of the established government-sanctioned churches. George Whitfield comes through town on a Sunday, and nobody shows up. Wouldn't that just it would make you feel awful? It would make you feel terrible, you know? Um, and, and, and yet, there is a point at which these preachers must have realized that in the colonial religious context, well, I mean, how can I put it? Uh, you know, and, and I, I teach at West Point. Outside of West Point is this little town called Highland Falls. Nothing to it, but there are five banks in Highland Falls. Now, uh, not in Highland Falls, but you have to drive a good bit. Uh, you could also find, uh, in another town, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Now, where, where would you expect to find better customer service? A bank or the Department of Motor Vehicles? Where, where will the line be shorter? Where will the service be friendlier? Where will the people care more about your satisfaction? Raise your hand if you think it's the Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> Raise your hand if you think it's the bank. And why is that? It's because there's competition. 
right? I mean, there, there are multiple banks. If you don't like the service in one bank, then you have the power, you have the ability to withdraw your money and take your business elsewhere. And that is something that prior to the arrival of George Whitfield, people in America did not have the opportunity to do in terms of religion. There might be some, some uh, minority faiths um, that, that were tolerated, depended on the time, depended on the place, depended on, upon the, the particular minority faith. But, but by and large, there was one church in town, and that was going to be your church. And you were going to go there. The law at least stipulated that you were supposed to go there, and your tax money would go to the, to the support of that church, whether you liked it or not. And, and so the churches had sort of become like the Department of Motor Vehicles until George Whitfield showed up. And, 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 and people were just astounded. This guy is dynamic. And, and, and clergymen started to imitate him. And the, 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 the Great Awakening gave rise to the, the, to the development um, of a bunch of insurgent faiths in America. If, if before the Great Awakening there would just be a congregational or... Um, Anglican church on the main street. You know, afterwards, depending on the size of the town, there might also be a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church. And suddenly, there's choice. And this choice gives rise to another very important thought that Americans uh, entertained prior to the American Revolution. And it's really fundamental when you think about it. I mean, if you are a member of, a, of a, if you're a Baptist, if you're a Presbyterian, if you're a Methodist, if you are not a member of the government-supported, government-sanctioned church, then you think that the government is wrong about religion. I mean, that really rattles your faith in the correctness, in the infallibility of government. Because if government could be wrong about God... Could government be wrong about how to go about garbage collection? You know, if, if the government could be wrong about God, could the government be wrong about taxes? If the government can be wrong about God, could the government be wrong about trade policy? If the government could be wrong about God, the government could be wrong about anything. The government could be wrong about everything. And, and, and so the American people, these children of the Great Awakening, are, are, are very much skeptical of government. They know that it is run by men, and they know that men are imperfect. And their conventional wisdom is, is to challenge the wisdom of government. It's one of the things that makes them free. So we have these different philosophies coming together, this respect for property, this notion that government exists to protect people's rights, um, this, this belief that government has limits, that government is fallible. And, and, and there's another constellation of ideas that makes this uh, generation of colonial Americans pretty special. It's, it's their notion that, that history moves through cycles, that throughout human experience, you have civilizations rising and developing but eventually falling for specific reasons. And, and understanding this, they would kind of look with skepticism at the British Empire. And, and, and they would look at humility. 
toward themselves. I'm going to show you a, a series of, of paintings um, done in the 1830s by the, uh, the famous artist Thomas Cole, you know, one of the pioneering members of the Hudson River School um, of Art. You know, again, not a, uh, an institution where people would go and take art classes and get diplomas, but instead more like a school of fish, a group of artists who in the 19th century uh, would paint uh, landscapes. And, and Thomas Cole, in this five-panel um, assemblage, uh, painted a, a series of landscapes designed to uh, show the course of empire. And it began, as, as John Locke agreed, in the state of nature. It began with Kelly and her basket of fish, right? And Jack. And, but, but uh, you know, the state of nature, for all of its uh, goodness, for all of its greatness, um, there, was, there was liberty, but there wasn't security. You know, so Kelly, uh, she, would, she would join together um, with others, and, and they would pledge to each other to protect each other's rights. And, and that did impose upon them certain burdens. For practical purposes, you would probably cease to be a nomad, because if other people are relying upon you, and you are relying upon other people for the protection of your rights, you can't just wander aimlessly scouring the woods for roots and berries. Instead, you're going to settle down, and you're going to pick up the plow. You're going to turn toward agriculture. And this, according to John Locke, um, was what would, would follow. And this, according to Thomas Cole's um, Course of Empire, is the next stage of civilization, the pastoral stage, the agrarian stage. And the American founding generation, when they thought about the sweep of history, they were particularly fond of this phase. They were particularly fond of this moment in time because they thought that it was a, a, a time and a place where people were particularly virtuous, where people were particularly good at ruling themselves, and they were good at, at, being, at being neighbors, in part because they're farmers. You know, and farmers, maybe especially before subsidies, um, farmers had certain characteristics. What, are farmers hardworking? I mean, what do you call a lazy farmer eventually? Dead. Right? First starving and then dead. So farmers are hard working. And farmers are their own bosses. You know, farmers are independent of mind and means. They own enough land to provide for the basic needs of themselves and their families. They're in charge. They make their own calls. They are their own bosses. You know, nowadays, and you know, maybe for me especially in a military environment, I mean, I live in this world of hierarchy. Um, one of the first things you, you, you sort of think about when you see someone is, are they going to call me sir, or am I going to call them sir or ma'am, right? I mean, everybody has this, this, this place in the pecking order. But that's not the case in the agrarian phase of civilization, where the vast majority of people own their own land, provide for themselves and their families, and are their own bosses. So there's this, this rough equality that people enjoy, and this, uh, this mindset that comes from that equality. Americans may have been British subjects, but in a workaday sense, Americans weren't really subject to anyone. Americans called their own shots. Americans ran their own shows. And uh, this, this perfect phase of civilization, you know, as many of the founders believe. Jefferson said, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. 
if ever he had a chosen people. You know? Because they have virtue. Because they are hardworking. Because, well, I don't know, would they be good members of community? Of communities? Who, who would you rather have as a neighbor? Um, say a farmer or um, like a carnival worker? <laughs> who, would, who would be a better next door neighbor? If someone was going to move in next door to you, would you want it to be a farmer or a carnival worker or a carny, people call them? Was it Austin Powers said, small hands smell like cabbage? Um, who would be a better, who would you rather have next door, a farmer or a carnival? Raise your hand if you would rather have a carnival worker living next door to you. Only a couple of hands. What if, raise your hand if you would rather have a farmer living next door. So, so why is that? I mean, you know, I think we could, we could figure this out. And exp- I mean, uh, where would you find, um, where would you find a carny? Uh, and by the, by the way, I don't mean to, I don't want to make fun of carnies. Um, I, I choose them for a reason. Carnies are nomadic, right? I mean, carnivals move from place to place, from town to town. You know, if they were permanent in, in any one location after a while, the show games and, you know, other such things would probably get old, right? But, uh, but they, they move about and they amuse communities um, for a short period of time and then they keep on going. So it's just because they're nomads that I single them out. I don't hate carnies. My mom is a carny. She's, she, she's not, actually. Um, but, but she could be, right? But uh, carny, on a, on a Saturday morning, on a Saturday morning, where would you find a carny? Yeah, he'd probably be passed out on your lawn. There'd be, there'd be like em- empty tall boys and 40s scattered about, cigarette butts everywhere, you know? I mean, who knows? Who knows? But where would you find a farmer on a Saturday morning? He'd be working in his field, perhaps, or perhaps you'd find him behind the local school or the local church building a playground for the children, right? Because the farmer, the farmer cares about the community. He has a compelling reason to care about the community. He is literally rooted in the soil. Not literally, but his, his stuff is. I mean, farmers, by, by, by the nature of their occupation, are, are permanent members of the community. So they have a vested interest in advancing it. So farmers are hardworking. They're their own bosses. They're independent of minds and, mind and means. Um, when they get involved in government, um, they, they can do so, not because they want the government to provide for them, but because they have uh, a, you know, an enlightened view of the common good for all these reasons. The founding generation thought that this agrarian stage was kind of the zenith of civilization. It is what um, really made America great and prosperous and free. But all that work, all that virtue, all that independence of mind and means, it was going to pay off. It was going to lead somewhere. And, and so Thomas Cole, the, the third panel of his, uh, of his um, collection, The Course of Empire, the third panel is empire, you know? And, it, and by the way, if you look at uh, these paintings, you'll notice they depict the same physical place. So you can see that mountain with the boulder up top on the right side of the, uh, the frame. I mean, that's present in the uh, second panel. That's present in the first panel. So we move from the state of nature to the agrarian phase to empire. And here, people enjoy the good life. Here, people have it easy. Here, people enjoy tremendous wealth. 
Um, but here, society begins to unravel. Here, the rough equality that people enjoy, this notion that, that everybody is, is, is his or her own boss, um, that begins to fall victim to a greater hierarchy. Um, and the ease that people um, enjoy begins to undermine the, the value they place on freedom. People begin to uh, sacrifice their freedom for promises of security and wealth and preferment. And the uh, virtue that allowed this civilization to be built begins to be undermined by vanity and vice, decadence and depravity, until eventually society, according to these, these, these thinkers, would collapse under its own corpulence. And then you move to the next stage of civilization, which is destruction. And after destruction comes desolation, which is essentially back to square one, back to the state of nature. And, and this, this notion of the, the cycles of history is, is going to be very important for the revolutionary generation. Because although in the middle of the 18th century they don't yet suspect it, by the three-quarter mark of the 18th century, they are going to be convinced that the British Empire is teetering on the precipice, that the British Empire is poised for ruin, that the British Empire has become corrupt, that the British Empire has forgotten about the importance of freedom and virtue, that the British Empire is about to fall, and that if they don't detach themselves, they're going to be torn down with it. Now, they had not an inkling of this at the time of the installation of their monarch, George III. George III became the king during the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War, as it was known globally. Americans were enthusiastic participants in the French and Indian War. They were happy to fight alongside the British, and many of them did. Um, don't for a second think that the British came and fought the French and the Indians in North America between 1754 and 1763, and the American colonists were just bystanders. Um, this man, Charles Royster, wrote a, a, a number of fine books on the French and Indian War, one that focused on Massachusetts, which has particularly good re records, noted that during the course of the French and Indian War, one-third of all men in Massachusetts of military age put on a uniform, left the colony of Massachusetts, and fought on behalf of the British in the French and Indian War. And of course, the American colonial governments were contributing you know, monetarily to this conflict, provisioning their troops. And uh, of course, we were happy to fight with the British against the French and against the Indians. The British Empire, in, in, the, in the minds of Americans, represented all that was good. They had this limited monarch, this limited government. The French were ruled by an absolutist. The French and their Indian allies, and it's not a shocker why most Indian nations allied themselves with the French. You know, the English, when they sent colony, colonists to America, they sent families. They sent fathers and mothers who, in, in, in certain spots like New England, had on average eight kids per family. So, so Englishmen are spreading across the continent like a disease, like a plague. Every new generation requires more and more land. If, if you're a Native American, you can see the writing on the wall. 
The French, meanwhile, who do they send over? They send over Jesuits and, and, and fur traders. You know, people who, um, because they're engaged in, in, in commerce with them, I mean, commerce is, by definition, if it's voluntary, it's mutually beneficial. So, so the Indians gain through the presence of the French, not so the English. So we have these two sides lined up for this, uh, this, this prolonged battle. Um, George III is the king. Americans look at him as the legatee of the glorious revolution, the protector of their rights, the protector of their liberties. They loved him. People in England loved him. Everybody loved him with the possible exception of Dalmatians. <laughs> so, so George III, George III is, is someone uh, upon the time of his coronation who M Americans would, would you know, never imagine that they would rebel against this man. And the French and Indian War uh, was this real high point for Anglo-American relations. Um, I teach at West Point, so obviously I must know a lot about military history. Um, let me sum it up uh, briefly for you. The French and Indian War, well, there were red arrows, there were blue arrows, there were red explosions, and there were blue explosions, and we won! We won the French and Indian War. God save the king. But of course, the French and Indian War, which essentially banished the French from the North American continent, did come with a cost. Of course, there was a cost in terms of human lives, but there was also a financial cost. I mean, wars are always expensive and burdensome in various ways. And uh, monetarily, Great Britain saw that during the course of the Seven Years' War, its debt doubled. And, and people began to look at their North American colonies. Members of Parliament began to look and, and, and wonder and ask themselves, does, does this arrangement really make sense? In 1763, for example, the British government collected 1,800 pounds in revenue from their American colonies. 1,800 pounds. Now, I don't know what a pound would buy. You know, I haven't seen the Big Mac index for, uh, for, for 1763. But I, but I do know this. We could, we could compare that, that number on the plus side with the number on the minus side. So in terms of revenue, the British got 1,800 pounds from the American colonies in 1763. In terms of their expenses, 384,000 pounds. So an enormous disparity between what they spent and what they got. And if you're a member of parliament, you're going to start thinking about how you could avoid future expensive wars and how you can correct that imbalance. To avoid future expensive wars, the British government imposed um, the proclamation line of 1763. So they drew this, this line, you know, from the, on the crest of the Appalachian Mountains, from what is now Maine all the way down to Georgia, and they said that American colonists couldn't move past this line. The French, of course, were vanquished, but their Indian allies were still on the continent. And the British knew that if they were going to avoid a future expensive war, they would need to separate their growing colonial population from the indigenous population. And so this line was designed to do that. But for the American colonists, I mean, this is really shocking. This is really puzzling. Because the British government, 
to which they were loyal and for which they fought. Their government, their victorious government, here seemed to be siding with their enemy and, and not with, with they themselves. I mean, there were a number of people, especially folks who lived in the back country, who were very much involved in the fighting of the French and Indian War. People who perhaps uh, against the Indians uh, lost a, a father or a son or an arm or a leg. People who perhaps saw their, their, their villages burned or their crops cut down in, in conflict with the Indians. Now see that the British government, their government, is siding not with them, but, but with their enemy. And it's doing so in a way that restricts their rights. It restricts their liberty to move about freely in land over which the English flag flies. So for them, I mean, this is really, really an insult and, and, and really disturbing. The British government, the government that's, that's designed to protect life and liberty, here seems to be um, circumscribing their liberty. How wrong they thought. How awful. And, and yet, things were about to get even worse. Members of parliament faced with this disparity between revenue and expenses in North America, they had a choice. If they wanted to correct that imbalance, they could raise revenue or they could cut spending. What, what would you guess these legislators decided to do? Are they going to cut spending? No. They choose to raise revenue. They choose to impose a series of new taxes upon the people of British North America. And in 1765, they imposed the Stamp Act. And I, you know, it's almost as if the British had gone to uh, Barnes and Noble or the 18th century version of Amazon.com and um, bought a book called How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. Um, because this, I mean, it seems like every step they took could, could not have been better calculated, however unintentionally it was calculated, could not have been better calculated to uh, undermine the authority of the British Empire. Um, the Stamp Act was uh, seemingly designed to alienate every important constituency in British North America. They had already alienated the people of the back country with the proclamation line. And it seemed as if the Stamp Act took care of all the others. When you think about like important occupational constituencies that you probably wouldn't want to alienate, uh, the Stamp Act seemed to target them all. So the Stamp Act was this actual stamp would, would, would be pressed upon um, products, almost all of which were made of paper. So uh, merchants who sold these things bearing the stamp, because of the Stamp Act, because of the stamp, these things all cost more money. And, and with the price increasing, people could afford to buy fewer things. So this really cut into the, 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 the profits that merchants could expect to make. And worse, perhaps, was the burden of, the, of administering the Stamp Act, of collecting the money, of keeping it aside, of keeping the records. I mean, this really was uh, an onerous, odious kind of tax. And of course, it wasn't just the fact that it was a tax. It was the fact that in Parliament, they had no representatives. 
I mean, colonial Americans, they had in each colony their own parliament. In, in Virginia, beginning in 1619, they had the House of Burgesses. Other colonies followed. They all had their own assemblies, their own legislatures. These legislatures had direct representatives of the American people. These legislatures were elected by the American people. These legislators uh, could consult with the American people. The American people accepted that you know, for certain limited purposes, their own colonial legislatures could tax them. But the British Parliament, where they had no representation, for it to tax them without their consent? I mean, I know we live in kind of morally relativistic times, but what do we call it if somebody reaches into our pocket and takes our money without asking? What is that? That's theft. That's stealing. I mean, this is a government that exists for the purpose of protecting people's life and their liberty and their property, and yet this government is beginning to violate our property rights. This government, which is, which is supposed to protect us against Jack the Barbarian, is, is now acting like Jack the Barbarian and stealing from us. And, and it's not just the merchants who hate the Stamp Act. It's also um, the lawyers, because all legal documents have to bear the stamp. And of course, you know, then as now, I suppose, lawyers are kind of disproportionately represented in these colonial houses of assembly. And, and members of the clergy who have been extraordinarily important in American life since the Great Awakening, they um, dislike the Stamp Act. Even Bibles have to bear the stamp. And, 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 and marriage certificates. And, and the press, you know, the British are reading their How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. Um, one thing it says in chapter one is alienate the press. So the stamp has to be affixed to newspapers. So newspapers are more expensive to sell. And, and newspapermen have to deal with the burden of, of, of managing the revenue that they collect as a result of the stamp tax. So the press is against them. And uh, who else to alienate? Well, uh, the British, they're so nice and polite. They don't want anyone to feel out, left out. Um, college professors, you know, probably not, frankly, the most uh, important uh, group um, in terms of, of their influence. But they like to think so. They like to think so. And the British wanted them to feel included. So even diplomas had to bear the stamp. And of all these groups that the British have gone about alienating through this tax, there's one that they, they took care not to leave out. Drunkards and rabble from the bars. And, and, and so the British mandated that stamps had to be affixed to the packaging of playing cards and dice. So, so now the mob would be against the Stamp Act. And there really was this, this mob, this crowd, this, this large group of Americans who rose up in protest of the Stamp Act. They boycotted products bearing the stamp. They, uh, they protested. They petitioned. They, they formed committees of correspondence and, and, and linked up with people in, in other colonies and other cities and this burgeoning um, you know, colonial marketplace where people are increasingly interconnected through trade, facilitated you know, the, this networking of protest. They uh, targeted stamp tax collectors. They shunned them. They, they uh, tarred and feathered them in effigy. And, and the British, again, reading their How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, I mean, you know, here's a situation where the American colonists are really behaving badly. And the British should try to discourage this kind of um, behavior. And, you know, a lot of you 
uh, are parents or, or have, have uh, raised children. And, and when you think about like raising kids and, and, and how you go about it, I mean, you know, there's certain basic principles. Um, I have a son who's eight and a daughter who's now six, but it doesn't seem like that long ago um, we were potty training my daughter, Grace. So if Grace successfully used the bathroom, would we give her a lollipop or would we make her stand in the corner? We'd give her a lollipop, right? You know, good job, Grace. If, if Grace had an accident and, and we thought it was intentional, she was just being lazy, lollipop or corner? Make her stand in the corner. I mean, here, the American colonists, by resisting the Stamp Act, by refusing to buy stamped products, by petitioning, by rioting, by boycotting, by questioning the authority of the government, I mean, they have made a, a major mess on the imperial carpet, right? But what does the British do? What do the British do? Do they give them a lollipop, or do they make the American colonists stand in the corner? They give them a lollipop. The British government in 1766 repeals the Stamp Act. And, and so the American colonists are conditioned to know what they do in the event of uh, an act being passed that they don't like. They rise up against it, and the British repeal it. And, and this is going to happen again and again. In 1767, the British pass the Townsend Duties, another series of taxes on lead, glass, paint, paper, and tea. And again, the colonists say, this is, this is stealing. This is taxation without representation. You haven't asked for our permission. We don't have representation in Parliament. We can't really have practical representation in Parliament. It's too far away. There's no way that we could really communicate with Parliament. And, and again, in, in protest of, of the Townsend duties, they boycott, they complain, they petition, they protest, they, they unite you know, from one end of the British North American colonies to the other. And the British, acting as, as they did, reading How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, the British decide, hmm, lollipop or corner? And what do they do? They decide once again to give the colonists a lollipop. And on March 5th, 1770, they repealed the Townsend duties. Now, they hoped that this day, the British, they hoped that this day, March 5th, 1770, will forever stand out as this, this you know, major day in um, Anglo-American friendship. And yet it turns out quite differently. The story of March 5th really begins on March 3rd, in the town of Boston, Massachusetts. Boston has been occupied by British soldiers ever since 1768. And the Americans know, I mean, the, it's, not like the, it's not like there are Indians in Boston. It's not like the French are anywhere near Boston. Those British soldiers are there to oppress them. Those British soldiers are there to intimidate them. Those British soldiers are there to enforce the laws to which the colonists hadn't consented. So the British soldiers are very much resented. They're resented not only for these political reasons, but also for economic ones. I feel sorry for the British soldiers. They were very poorly paid. And uh, frankly, it seems they were pretty poorly led. And they were allowed to work second jobs. And all of the, uh, the laborers of Boston, you know, all the men in Boston who, who uh, didn't own farms but, but did you know, odd jobs for pay were outraged because the, the labor market was affected um, tremendously by the arrival of the British. The demand for labor stayed about the same, but the supply of labor 
increased dramatically, so wages fell. So the, the men of Boston really hated these British soldiers. And one, one night, Saturday, March 3rd, 1770, this group of, of British soldiers were off duty, walking through Boston. Saturday night, you can imagine people had probably been in the taverns and whatnot. A bunch of local Bostonians are in a group, and they see these off-duty British soldiers, and one of them calls out to the crowd of British soldiers, hey, any of you need a job? And one of the British soldiers turns around. He says, yeah, yeah, I could use some work. I'll, I'll clean this up slightly. He says, clean my outhouse. And this is a huge insult. And so there's this, this alcohol-fueled street brawl, right, in, in Boston on Saturday night, March 3rd. March 4th, Sunday, everyone goes to church, things are quiet. Monday night, March 5th, 1770, a British soldier has been, been, been uh, commanded to stand guard in front of the Customs House, a building that is probably the biggest target in all of Boston. People hate this building. This is the building where the tax collectors work. And he's standing there, and it's a cold night. Um, there's snow and ice on the ground. It's dark. Um, and a bunch of little kids start coming up, and they start harassing him. And they start throwing snowballs. And those snowballs turn to ice and sticks and stones and words and insults. And this poor sensitive British soldier, apparently the words did hurt him. And, and so did the threat of these things being projected through the air. So he called for reinforcements. And, 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 and soon enough, there was a line of British soldiers with their back against the wall of the customs house. Their bayonets fixed, their, their, their guns drawn, um, fending off a growing crowd that soon would include not only children, but also large numbers of adults. Because at some point in that night, for reasons that we still don't understand, all of the church bells in Boston started to ring. I mean, a Monday night, all the church bells are ringing. What would that be a sign of? Yes, yeah, some sort of emergency. And, and in, in, a, in a wooden town in the 18th century, what would be the most likely emergency? A fire, yeah. I mean, people were paranoid about fires. Not paranoid. They were, they were right to be fearful of, of fires and, and the damage that they could do. So people started to come out of their houses. Some of them carried buckets of water. They were worried that there was a fire somewhere. And, and, and the crowds began to converge upon the customs house. And these British soldiers, with their backs against the wall, saw in front of them this growing mob of people. And the people in, in, the, in, the, in the front of this revolutionary mosh pit, right, um, with, their, with the bayonets pointing against their chest, they don't want to move forward toward the bayonets. They push back. And the people in the back of this crowd, they feel the, the crowd surging back. They push forward. And it's pandemonium. And people are throwing things. And people are shouting. And the bells are ringing. And the bells can be a sign of what? Fire, someone yells. And one of the British soldiers does. And there are 11 bodies on the ground after all of his colleagues open, up fire, open fire as well. And, and this, this is the Boston Massacre. This is the Boston Massacre as it was depicted by Paul Revere, the silversmith and son of liberty. But of course, this is not the Boston Massacre as it happened. The Boston Massacre wasn't even really a massacre. It was the Boston misunderstanding or lousy incident. And, and yet, this is what colonists thought the Boston Massacre was. This is how it was depicted to them. And so in their minds, the British government, which was designed to protect their life 
and their liberty and their property. It was threatening life and liberty and property. It was, it was working against all of the principles it had been established for. About three years later, Americans increasingly fed up with Great Britain go to Griffin's Wharf in Boston. The British, they had repealed the, uh, the Townsend duties, but there was still a tax upon tea. And resolutely, the American colonists had been boycotting tea. Instead, they would have sort of homemade herbal teas, or they would get like Dutch black market tea. Um, but being good Britons, they loved British tea. They very much desired British tea. And the British, they came up with a really kind of diabolical plan um, to get the Americans to, to, to lose their will and, and buy British tea, which was taxed. As a point of principle, they refused to do that. And yet the British, they decided they were going to maintain the tax on British tea, but they were going to subsidize it so that it was cheaper than even the, 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 the local grown herbal tea, this wonderful British tea. The colonists, their hands quivering, they loved this stuff, you know? They, 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 they knew they couldn't resist the temptation. And so before the, the ships were unloaded, in, at Griffin's Wharf in Boston, the Eleanor, the Beaver, the Dartmouth, before they unloaded their cargoes of tea, members of the local Sons of Liberty, dressed as Mohawk Indians, they took off their shirts, smeared charcoal over their chest, put paint on their faces, put feathers in their hair. Um, I think they wanted to show that, you know, rather than being British subjects, they were native Americans. They boarded these ships, smashed open the cargo holds, and dumped into Boston Harbor 90,000 pounds, in terms of the weight, 90,000 pounds of tea. So here, once again, Americans have made a terrible mess on the British imperial carpet. What does Britain do? Lollipop or stand in the corner? I mean, they'd condition the Americans with lollipops. If you don't like something, resist it, protest it, petition it, and you'll be rewarded. And yet this time, what did the British do in response to the Boston Tea Party? Worse than standing in the corner. All right, they, they give the colonists sort of the, the 18th century equivalent of like a Walmart beating. You ever go to Walmart and you see parents you know, smacking their kids around. I don't know what it is about Walmart. I feel it myself when I go with my children. <laughs> Frustration levels rise. People have very short fuses, it seems. Just, um, but, I mean, the British pass, in response to the Boston Tea Party, what they call the coercive acts, which we call the intolerable acts. Boston Harbor is closed. The Boston... Assembly, the Massachusetts Assembly, is outlawed. It cannot meet for any purpose other than, than figuring out how to repay the tea. Even town meetings are banned. These Englishmen in America, these British subjects, these proud Britons, can't even make the laws under which they live. I mean, that is their English birthright. Many begin to say that they're not being treated like British people in America. They're not being treated like Britons. They're being treated like Irishmen, like an occupied people. Others say they're being treated like slaves, like people who don't even own themselves, not like freemen, not like the freemen that they are. And uh, they, they join together. 
they, uh, they, they protest and petition again. The other colonies realize if this could happen to, to, to Massachusetts, certainly it could happen to New York or Virginia or South Carolina. Patrick Henry in 1774 says, we are in a state of nature. The government isn't a government. The government isn't protecting our life and our liberty and our property. The government is violating our rights to life, liberty, and property. The government isn't a government anymore. It's almost as if we don't even need to declare independence from the government because the government has declared independence from us. It, 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 it has violated its, the, the, the things that, that give it its purpose. The government has become the barbarian. And, and we are in a state of nature, and it's incumbent upon us to figure out how we can band together to protect our rights, which we do at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. After the uh, British opened, uh, opened the war at Lexington and Concord in 1775, we still try to petition. We, we still try to compromise. You know, we don't want to take that plunge of independence. And it takes a good year before Richard Henry Lee on the floor of the Continental Congress advances the resolution that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And of course, it's not until July 4th that Thomas Jefferson and his uh, Declaration of Independence go before the, uh, the Continental Congress and are ratified. And there in the Declaration of Independence, I mean, you, you see again these British principles, these principles that gave the British government legitimacy and now give this new independent American nation, this nation of nations, these 13 nations, their legitimacy as, as free and, and equal governments on the planet with free and equal people who are equal in their rights and who live under governments that will protect their rights. Of all the things that make America a place that's free, it's the protection of individual rights, they argue. That is the most foundational. That is the most fundamental. That is the thing that matters more than anything else. Thank you very much. So I think we have about five minutes um, for, for questions. So yes. Hi, Rob. I was wondering, um, you know, we're talking about natural law and natural order and, you know, kind of where do you personally draw the line? I know this is a big question, you know, in New York, they had the gun registration for assault weapons. Right, right. Zoning laws, you know, if you're, you know, the owner of the property, let's just make it easy. And where do you kind of draw the line? Because, you know, trying to register a weapon is not overtly aggressive, but if they're going to come to your house right. and try and take it away or put you in jail for it, where do you kind of draw the line in a civil society and why do you think that? I mean, I, I think that, that, that people should work within the law and work with, you know, the nice thing about the American Revolution is we, we created this system, this process, so that we can work within the law to fight oppression. And every, year, every four years, right, on a national basis, we have a peaceful revolution. You know, we, we have the opportunity just by voting to overthrow our, our tyrant, right? 
and almost always the person is, um, you know, we have that opportunity. And, and I think people have to be vigilant. They have to, to realize that, that you know, there are laws imposed that violate their rights, you know, whether it, it deals with um, zoning or guns or big gulps. You know, people have to have a, a basic understanding of, of what government was created for and, and you know, how they can participate in, in resisting things that, that are oppressive. And uh, I think, you know, it's important that people do that. I, I think the people are pretty vigilant. I mean, it seems that in, in recent years especially, um, you know, maybe going off of Brian's uh, talk last night after dinner, I think that people are, are sort of waking, waking up and, and appreciating, you know, exactly uh, what government is for and, and how it's important that they stand up for their individual rights and individual liberties. And, you know, it's incumbent upon them to, to do that and, and not be passive and, and complain. And, um, you know, I, I think we see when, when people do that that they can enjoy some real success. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I mean, I, I, I agree that, you know, wherever we look, whenever we look, it's not just now, but throughout American history, um, there are some gross, horrible violations of individual rights. Slavery is, you know, the, the, the worst example of them all. Um, but, but it may take a while, but, but people can make a difference. And um, thankfully, you know, there is a mechanism in America that allows us to, to make that happen, um, you know, in a, in a way that hopefully is, is, is peaceful and, um, and, and, and quick. So, yeah, I'm, I try to be optimistic. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, sir. I, I think you're short of time, uh, but uh, I really enjoyed your talk. It was excellent. Well, we have to So, my favorite part of your presentation was your inclusion of art. And um, there are actually a lot of aesthetic similarities between the romanticization of pastoral art um, in Cole's paintings and then in Stalinist realism. And indeed, it's been an image and idea that seems to be quite persuasive. And so I was wondering if you could discuss briefly the role of paintings or propaganda which favored the independent farmer in the American Revolution or perhaps throughout the American um, fight for liberty um, in general. Well, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there, there certainly was uh, some some art that was viewable by the public. I mean, you know, we, we have the advantages of digitization and, you know, this mass culture which allows uh, us to see paintings that physically exist, you know, thousands of miles away. They didn't have that opportunity. But there were some political cartoons. Um, there were, uh, you know, woodcuts like, like uh, Paul Revere's depiction of the Boston Massacre. I mean, I, I think that, that, that did make things, you know, quite uh, visceral and, 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 and vivid for the American people. But I, but I should say, too, um, that they weren't, they were very highly literate people. Um, so, you know, the printed word was a really effective means of communication um, for these folks as well. And uh, a lot of the, the political um, commentary, the, the written stuff, is also very vivid and very visceral. Um, and I think it, it, it you know, formed, performed a, an important role in, in getting all these different people on board. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs>